Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is the personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 464. It's titled, More Ways to Lock in Higher Yields in Case Interest Rates Fall. We're currently doing a listener survey for listeners of Money for the Rest of Us, and we ask listeners what they want to hear about. And one of the leading suggestions is to do more multi-part series over several episodes that take a deeper dive into a particular topic. That's what this episode is. We discussed a number of ways to lock in higher yields in last week's episode. We want to continue that discussion in this week's episode and share some additional ways that we can lock in higher yields. Now, why would we want to do that? One of the questions we got from one of our Plus members is, well, if we think interest rates are going to fall, then why don't we just purchase a longer-term bond fund or ETF and benefit from the price appreciation if interest rates do fall? The reason is we're not sure they're going to fall, and we want to protect ourselves in case interest rates rise. In last week's episode, we reviewed the three primary drivers that determine interest rates. The first is the expectation for future short-term interest rates, and that's tied to the central bank policy rate in the U.S. at the Fed's fund rate. As investors believe a central bank will be lowering its policy rate in the future, that can put downward pressure on interest rates. The second driver was inflation expectations. When market participants believe inflation rates are going up, or expected inflation, that can put upward pressure on interest rates. And when they believe inflation will be falling, that can put downward pressure. The third element was the term premium. Additional compensation investors demand for uncertainty regarding inflation and what central banks will do. This term premium is also a catch-all from the impacts of supply and demand. We've seen interest rates fall about 0.9% since last fall. And about half of that was due to the term premium declining, and the rest was due to expectations that short-term interest rates would fall, the policy rate, as well as lower inflation expectations. Last week in The Economist, there was an article that shared a, a pretty fascinating graph. It was a graph of the federal funds rate target over time going back to 2007, and it shows the policy rate, which right now is at 5.25%. But off that main bolded line, there are all these other little lines going off to the right. Sometimes they go up, sometimes they go down. And those lines reflect the future expectations of short-term interest rates at that given point in time. I'll include the chart in our weekly Insider's Guide emails. It's hard to explain in audio, but the conclusion of it is that market participants are not very good at predicting interest rates. Throughout the the Fed's raising of the policy rate over the past two years, the expectation of market participants was it would never get anywhere near as high as it eventually got. And now they're anticipating that the policy rate will fall, but their expectations for how much it would fall varies over time. And so when we talk about locking in higher yields, it's because we don't know if interest rates are going to fall or whether they're going to rise, and we're content that we can get 4% or 5% lock in that return over the next five years or so. 
Before we continue, let me pause and share some words for one of this week's sponsors. If you have been using Mint like I did for over a decade to manage your finances, you know they shut down. But there's a better alternative that I've been using and I'm incredibly happy with. Monarch Money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. Monarch even has a tool that allows you to easily import your data from Mint and keep all your tags and categories. I was able to create some custom categories for my budget with Monarch. I love the ability to customize. Plus, you get ad-free privacy you can trust. Monarch will not sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We think about if we really believe interest rates are going to fall, then we would go out and buy some type of longer-term bond ETF. But because interest rates go up and down, the longer the maturity of the particular bond or ETF or the interest rate sensitivity as measured by what's known as duration, that can really impact the return. For example, the iShares 20-plus-year Treasury Bond ETF, the ticker is TLT, it's down 4% this year because interest rates have gone up a little bit. It's, it's very sensitive to changes in interest rates. In 2022, that fund lost 31%. It gained a return positive 2.8% in 2023. I only mention it because of a concept that we've discussed a number of times on the show, which is known as volatility drag. When it comes to bonds, to fixed income, the best estimate of the future return is the current yield to maturity. Or if it's a bond that's likely to be called, it'll, it's the yield to worst. We discussed that last week. But that's for sort of bonds that are short to intermediate term. When it comes to longer-term bonds, it's not as good of an estimate because of the volatility of longer-term bonds. For example, 10 years ago, December 2013, the yield to maturity or or the yield on 20-year bonds, which is equivalent to what TLT invests in, that yield was 3.7%. If we look at then the average return, just averaging out the return over the past decade of TLT, that's 3.4%. So it's a pretty good proxy if we're just looking at the average return. If an asset class isn't overly volatile, the average return will be fairly close to what's known as the geometric return or the annualized return. Here with TLT, if we look at the annualized return, the geometric return over the past decade, it's 2.1%. It's over a percent lower than the starting yield for 20-year bonds and over a percent lower the average return over the past decade. Why is the geometric return so much lower or at least a percent lower? It's because of the volatility, because the the fund lost 31% in 2022. And, and when you lose such a large amount 
and then you have to gain even more to recover those losses, the mathematics of it weighs down the overall return so that the geometric return is less than the arithmetic return. And and one way to estimate that is you can take half of the variance. So the variance is the square of the standard deviation. The standard deviation and the measure of volatility for TLT over the past decade has been 14%. We square that, we get the standard deviation, which is 2%, and then we can take half of that, which is 1%, and that's an estimate of how much lower the geometric return will be relative to the arithmetic return. And it has been around 1% just because of how volatile TLT has been. And so when we think about, oh, interest rates are definitely going to fall, I'm going to go out very long duration. Yes, they might fall, but they might not. And there's times when, it, when interest rates rise and those longer duration funds have large losses and that can lead to bigger volatility drag. Now, I do think it's more likely that interest rates will fall in the coming years. I don't know how quickly, but inflation's coming down. The Federal Reserve at some point will reduce its policy rate. I'm not convinced it will happen this spring. The term premium is always a wild card just because of the sheer amount of treasury bonds that need to be issued in the U.S. due to the premium. But not everyone has this view. I was at our annual HOA meeting recently, and one of our neighbors recommended a financial YouTuber that I won't mention his name. But this YouTuber was convinced interest rates were going to rise as the Federal Reserve cuts its policy rate. And he gave two examples in the 70s when that happened. Now, there were more examples when the Fed cut its policy rate and interest rates fell. But there are times when they they don't. I don't want to mention this YouTuber because his logic for why interest rates would rise even as the Fed cuts its policy rate was flawed. He correctly pointed out that banks, when they lend, they create new money. They lend money into existence, something we've discussed numerous times. They deposit the loan amount in the borrower's account, and they offset that with a loan receivable on their books. This YouTuber, though, said that because the policy rate was going to be lower, that the government was going to borrow more money. And because they were borrowing more money, the U.S. federal government, that would increase the amount of treasuries outstanding, and that would lead to more money, more money creation, a bigger money supply. And that would lead to higher inflation. And as a result, interest rates would go up because inflation was higher. The problem with that is while it is true that large increases in the money supply can and have led to higher inflation, particularly if there are capacity constraints in the economy, Issuing government bonds doesn't increase the money supply. Let's take a step back. What happens when the federal government borrows money? Well, first off, they're borrowing money because they're running a deficit. So they've spent more money than they have received in tax revenue. And so spending that money, sending it to the checking account of individuals, let's say Social Security payments, that act on its own would increase the money supply. But When the government issues the bond, whoever buys that bond takes some of their cash, their money, and they buys the bond. That soaks up that money that flowed out into the economy from the government spending. They completely offset. On the one hand, the government's spending money. On the other, they're issuing a bond and they're taking back money from whoever bought the bond. The exception to this 
is if the Federal Reserve or another nation's central bank is buying those domestic bonds with newly created money. This is known as quantitative easing, and it is what led to the huge jump in the money supply, a $6 trillion increase in the U.S. that spawned our biggest inflation in over 30 years. But that's not where we are today. The Federal Reserve is, is reducing their balance sheet in quantitative tightening, and that is reducing the money supply, something we've talked about in recent episodes. So that is not true that if the Federal Reserve cuts its policy rate and the U.S. government issues more treasury bills, that that will automatically lead to higher inflation because of, of a larger money supply. We don't know. Rates could go up. They could go down. That's why we're thinking about locking in those higher yields if we want. Last week, we discussed two ways to do that. We can purchase individual bonds or we can purchase bullet ETFs, which are ETFs that have a set maturity and they hold a basket of individual bonds that mature on a specific date. We won't revisit that today, but here are three additional options. The first are bank certificates of deposits. The second is fixed annuities. And the third is zero-coupon treasury bonds. Most of us are familiar with certificates of deposits. They're issued by banks or credit unions. They are for a fixed amount of time, let's say five years, and the investor receives interest. The interest is credited to the, the CD. Sometimes the interest can go into a, another account, but typically it just stays into the account. The benefit uh, of CDs is they're insured by the government. In the U.S., it's the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corp. You can choose different lengths for the CDs. Often there's an early withdrawal penalty, but there is something called a brokered CD where you can get with your online broker, in my case Schwab, and they'll list out CDs. And depending on the particular criteria, sometimes they'll allow you to sell it early without a penalty. But generally, traditionally, CDs has been a penalty for selling early. And one of the challenges with CDs is even though if the, the interest is credited to the account and you don't necessarily have access to the cash, you're still taxed each year on that interest. I looked on Schwab and, and there are brokered CDs or CDs available there, five years that are paying a yield of 4.1%. So an investor could go in and they could buy that CD Seems like the minimum might have been $10,000 maybe, and they could lock in a 4.1% yield. So that's one option. Another option, fixed annuities. These are sometimes called deferred annuities or multi-year guaranteed annuities. And they have some similarities to certificates of deposits, but they are issued by insurance companies. They're not guaranteed by the federal government, but if you buy a fixed annuity from a highly rated insurance company, the, the likelihood of the insurer not honoring the, the annuity is incredibly small. And most states have some type of insurance pool to protect against annuities that get defaulted on. And it's just incredibly rare. But still, one can choose a highly rated fixed annuity and choose different terms. I focused on, on five years in this episode, just so it's easier to compare apples to apples. But I went to immediateannuities.com and saw five-year fixed annuities for A++ rated insurers that had a yield of 5.3%, over percent higher than certificates of deposits. 
One benefit of fixed annuities is the interest received each year, and that's added to the account, that is not taxed each year. It's deferred until the end of the contract. And if you buy what's called a non-qualified fixed annuity, which means you buy it with after-tax dollars, when it matures, then you pay tax on the, the, the interest that was credited, but not until, in this case, the end of, of five years. There are some downsides to fixed annuities. They, they can be complicated. They come with a, a very lengthy contract, a lot of which discusses, well, what to do at the end of the term. Do you want to roll it into another annuity or something like that? Many people that invest in fixed annuities, including some members of Money for the Restless Plus, they just use them kind of like CDs. They'll, they'll buy one for five years, they'll hold it, pay the tax on the interest income at the end, and then decide what to do with those funds. But they do come with a fairly long contract, and, and it can take 30 to, to 45 days to go through the paperwork and complete the process. This is not as simple as just buying a brokered CD through your online broker, but the yields are higher, 5.3% for five-year fixed annuities right now. The other challenge with fixed annuities is if it's a non-qualified annuity purchased with after-tax money, if the annuitant decides to, to exit the contract early before it matures, so let's say in year, year three for a five-year fixed annuity, not only do, does that investor owe the tax on the interest, but there's an additional 10% penalty on that interest because there's a tax deferral element of fixed annuities, and the federal government in the U.S. discourages sort of accessing that cash too early. They wanted the annuity to mature. So that, that seems a little egregious, but that, that, those are the rules. You shouldn't exit a fixed annuity early, which means there's a difference between, let's say, a CD and a fixed annuities to lock in yields that way compared to some of the options we discussed last week. You don't have the optionality with an, an annuity or a CD in the same way you do buying a bullet ETF or an individual bond. If interest rates fall, if you own an individual bond, you can sell it. It's very liquid and capture that gain. Do the same with a bullet ETF. Very, very liquid. CDs are not necessarily as liquid and you don't get the price appreciation if interest rates fall in the interim. You just get your interest. And there are impediments to accessing that interest early. There could be penalties. Not always, but there could be with CDs, and, and there certainly is an early withdrawal penalty with a, a fixed annuity. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. A final option that 
I don't think I've ever discussed in the 10 years we've been doing money for the rest of us. It's zero coupon bonds. These are government bonds that don't have a coupon payment, an interest payment. You buy the bond, let's say it's a five-year zero coupon bond. You buy it at a discount. And then at the end of the term, you get the principal back and there's an imputed interest rate. So you're not having to deal with the cash flow worries of figuring out how to reinvest interest payments because you just buy it at a discount. It appreciates to the principal value and the return ends up being essentially that starting yield to maturity. I hadn't really thought about this, but it turns out the U.S. government doesn't actually issue zero coupon bonds. All the bonds that they issue have a coupon payment and pay interest. It's the financial industry that creates zero coupon bonds. They'll take a 30-year treasury bond and they'll, they'll split up the different payments. And that's why these zero coupon bonds are sometimes called treasury strips, with strips standing for separate trading of registered interest and principal of securities. With these strips, every interest payment and every final principal payment is its own security. So it's a manufactured security by taking apart a traditional 30-year treasury bond. I went on Schwab and I can buy a five-year zero-coupon bond, seven-year, different maturities, but recognize that that's not the original bond issued by the U.S. government. It's a, a portion of it. And so it would still very, very low risk which is why if we look at the yields on zero-coupon bonds, they basically are similar to the comparable treasury bond yield, the one that pays dividend. So the yield of maturity is the same. It's just that with the, the strip, the zero-coupon bond, there is no interest payment. There's still taxes to be paid, though, because of the imputed interest. The government still wants its money. And so even though you're not receiving cash flow, you still have to pay interest on the appreciation as the discount narrows over time. The only reason really to purchase a zero coupon bond versus a nominal treasury is you don't want to receive any cash flows. You want to not have to worry about reinvesting that cash flow. The other reason people invest in strips is because they believe interest rates are going to fall. A regular coupon bearing bond and a strip of the same maturity, let's say both 20 years, the strip's going to have a higher duration. It's going to be much more interest rate sensitive because there aren't any cash flows except for that final payment. And so investors, speculators really, will sometimes invest in strips as a way to really get a big bang if interest rates fall. So we've looked at, over the past two episodes, a number of ways to lock in higher yields because we're not sure interest rates are going to fall. We know what drives interest rates. We know that market participants are, are lousy at forecasting the direction of interest rates. So then we have a choice. We can purchase a number of different options to lock in higher yields. If we decide we want to do bullet ETFs. There's the Invesco Bullet Shares 2029 Corporate Bond ETF. So it matures in five years. The ticker is BSCT. These are investment grade corporate bonds. So there is credit risk there, but typically investment grade bonds, the default risk is incredibly low. The SEC yield is 4.8%. That's an estimate of the return of investing this over the next five years. We could do a five-year treasury bond. Right now, the yield on a five-year treasury bond, so very low default risk, is 4%. 
for both the bullet ETF and the treasury bond you're taxed each year on the interest received. We could do a five-year zero-coupon treasury bond, a, a strip. That's also yielding 4% right now, about the same as nominal treasuries, but you're not getting any cash flow even though you're still paying taxes on the imputed interest. We could buy a five-year treasury inflation protection security. The yield right now is 1.8%. The investor will earn 1.8% plus whatever the inflation rate is. In the case of tips, you're taxed on any interest you receive as well as the increase in the principal amount due to the increase in inflation. So with that increase in principal amount, you're not getting cash flow, but you still owe taxes on it. But the benefit of the tips is you know you're going to get the 1.8% and then you'll get whatever inflation will be. We could buy a five-year agency bond issued by an agency of the federal government, such as a federal home loan bank. Last week, we discussed how many bonds are callable. They can be redeemed early. And so we want to own a callable bond that has a lower coupon rate, stated interest rate compared to prevailing rates. So it's less likely to be called. So a five-year federal home loan bank agency bond that has a coupon payment of 1.65%, so not likely to be called in the next five years, that yield to maturity is 4.3%. So all those options, there would be some benefit if interest rates fall because of the optionality of selling it and taking the gain because of the price appreciation. They're liquid options. We could get a five-year CD, 4.1% is what they're paying right now, You can't really get out early, but you do get the FDIC government insurance. Or we could do more legwork, more paperwork, and lock in the highest yield of all the options with a fixed annuity through an insurance company. Yields right now about 5.3%. They're not liquid, but you don't have to pay taxes on the interest income until the fixed annuity matures. And then there's municipal bonds, which we discussed some last week. 3.1% yield to maturity right now for a AAA municipal five-year low coupons are not likely to be called. And then we can calculate a tax equivalent yield for that by dividing that 3.1% yield to maturity by one minus the tax rate. If an individual is in the 35% federal income tax bracket because the interest income is tax exempt, that's equivalent to around a 4.8% yield, similar to the the bullet ETF. So many options. That's why it took two weeks to go through them all. What do you do? I use a variety of ways. And I think most investors can have a variety of options in their portfolio. I bought individual bonds. I still own some bond closed-end funds, bond mutual funds. I have a variety of them. It's important to understand the, the the ins and outs of each option, the tax consequences of it if it's in a taxable account. So that's why we've gone through a number of options. There's not one best choice. It's just really helpful to have different tools that we can use to lock in higher yields for a portion of our bond portfolio. And and maybe we keep some that can benefit from a drop in interest rates if that happens. So I'm all about multiple return drivers in our portfolio. We can decide how complicated we want to be, how many holdings, but we should at least understand what the options are and what is it that drives interest rates, as we've discussed, and have the humility to realize we don't know whether rates will fall or rise from here. Market professionals 
don't know. But what we do know is what yields are now. And if we're content with that, we can decide to lock in a yield because we're happy to earn 4 to 5% right now over the next five years or longer. That's episode 464. Thanks for listening. You may be missing some of the best Money for the Rest of Us content. Our weekly Insider's Guide email newsletter goes beyond what we cover in our podcast episodes and helps elevate your investment journey with information that works best in written and visual formats. With the Insider's Guide, you can discover actionable investing insights provided only to our newsletter subscribers. Unlock greater investing confidence with high-value snippets from our premium products, plus membership and asset camp. Access exclusive news, offers, and events you won't hear about anywhere else. Further connect with the Money for the Rest of Us team and community. And when you sign up, we'll also send you our exclusive investing checklist to help you invest with more confidence right away. The Insider's Guide is the best next step to get the most out of your investment journey. If you're not on the list, go to moneyfortherestofus.com and subscribe with the Become a Better Investor sign-up box. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.